Hi, good morning, everyone. Um, yeah, today we're going to talk about Romans chapter 11, 25 to 36, and we're going to focus on God's ultimate faithfulness and, and, uh, and how our response to God's faithfulness is just um, is gratitude. But, but last week we had talked about how Paul emphasized God's role and sovereignty in his ultimate plan for salvation. And, and one of those things was the idea of Israel's hearts being hardened. And the thing is that Paul kind of presents to us is that God actually influenced and caused this to happen. And the reason is because it served a specific purpose, and that purpose was for the, for the salvation to be extended to the Gentiles, for them to be included into the kingdom of heaven. And so what Paul is going to do from here on out, from uh, Romans chapter 11, verse 25, you guys can turn there actually, what he's going to do is he's going to give us a glimpse of what we should expect in the future, a glimpse into eschatology, uh, into when Christ returns again. Now, the passage we're going to look at today is a bit controversial uh, because it refers to what other people might think as, you know, there being a separate problem for, or a separate promise for Israel. Now, if this is the case, it seems to kind of contradict what Jesus had proclaimed in the Gospels, where he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and the only way to the Father is through me. And so if there is a separate promise for Israel, then what Jesus stated is maybe not true. But here, Paul, what he does in um, verse 25 on is he's, he's addressing this tension and this problem of how he's trying to reconcile that, that you know, salvation is for Jews and Gentiles. And, and on one hand, Paul is trying to convince the Jews that the Gentiles should be included in the kingdom of heaven into the family of God. And, and actually, it was, it was a result of their stubbornness that they're included. But on the other hand, Paul is trying to show how Israel hasn't been completely forgotten. That God still cares for them. And ultimately, they too will be saved. And in fact, everything that they've seen and experienced from the very beginning of Abraham to where Paul is now in the sense of including the Gentiles in the salvation plan, it's, all, it's actually all part of God's uh, foreknowledge. It's all part of God's uh, predestination, His ultimate plan for salvation. And so we're going to see Paul flush this out in Romans chapter 11, verse 25. And it says, I do not want you, the Gentile Christians, to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited, Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in. So remember last week we talked about how Paul is humbling the Gentile Christians, reminding them to be humble in their salvation, not to lord it over uh, the Jews or the Jewish Christians. That they are both under the same grace of God. That salvation is both under grace and they are more similar than they are different. And so here, Paul again reminds them to not be ignorant of this mystery. And, and the word mystery is a word that's used a lot in the Old Testament and it refers to a truth that's been hidden from God's people. It's a truth that has yet to be disclosed to his people. And the, and the mystery that Paul is talking about, 
the, the truth that has been hidden from the Gentile Christians is actually that all of Israel will be saved in the future. That God, that, that, um, that Israel's hardening of hearts will be true up until the point where the full number of Gentiles have come in. And once that has happened, God will reopen His promise of salvation to all of Israel. And so let's continue with verse 26 and 27. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So Paul explains that in the end, when Christ comes, when the Messiah comes again for the final time, all of Israel will be saved. And actually, um, again, Paul brings in two separate verses to make his point. This is something that we saw Paul do last week with verse 7 to 10. But here, um, the verses that Paul references, well, Paul first sets the scene with some eschatology. It's a picture of what's going to happen in the future, the second coming, the judgment day. By referencing a prophecy in the Old Testament about, uh, in the Old Testament about what will happen when the Messiah comes again to judge the world for the last time, he, he references specifically Isaiah chapter 59, verse 20 to 21. And it says this, The Redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who repent of their sins, declares the Lord. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit who is on you will not depart from you, and my words that I have put in your mouth will always be on your lips, on the lips of your children and on the lips of your descendants from this time on and forever, says the Lord. So we see here that the Redeemer, the Deliverer, right? This, refer, this Paul refers, refers to Christ in this by referencing this verse. That the Redeemer will come to Zion. Now, now notice the change in language in, in Romans that Paul does. Because in the passage in Isaiah, it says actually that the Messiah will, come, will go to Zion. But in Romans, it actually says that, there's, uh, that the Messiah will come from Zion instead. And this is an important shift that Paul emphasizes here because Christ already came to earth. He already came, um, he already came to Zion, or Christ came to the earth. He was crucified, he resurrected, and ascended into heaven. And so Christ already went to Zion. Heaven is Zion. He's already there. So when Paul says that the Messiah will come from Zion, it's recognizing that Christ was, uh, Christ was the Messiah and he already went to Zion and that he is coming from that. He's going to come back down from Zion to judge the world. Now, Paul, he then references after this Jeremiah chapter 31, 33 to 34 to talk about what will happen after the Messiah comes again. And he says that Christ will actually restore Israel. And he says, instead, everyone will die for their own sin. Whoever eats sour grapes, their own teeth will be set on edge. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel, with the people of Judah. Verse 33, this is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts that I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will give them, I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins are no more. 
verse 30 starts off with the strong condemnation of sin. But God clarifies He'll create a new covenant. And notice how in verse 34, Israel won't be able to share about God to their neighbors. And, and it's because in this prophecy, everybody in the world will already know God. Everybody in the world will already know who the Lord is, who Christ is. There will be no need for evangelism. And, and in this time, everyone will repent for their wickedness. And God will forgive everyone for, uh, because they repented. And so ultimately, by referencing these two verses, what Paul is proposing here is that sometime in the future, Jesus Christ will come again onto this earth. And when he comes, there will be a time of judgment. And after judgment, there will come a time where he establishes and initiates the kingdom on this earth. This, up to this point, this is what both Jew and Gentiles believe. But the problem is what the Israelites, what the Jewish Jewish people at that time don't believe in is that Jesus Christ is actually the Messiah. That Jesus Christ will be doing the judging. But what Paul is saying is that when when the Messiah comes on the second day, or on the second judgment day, when he comes, it will be undeniable that Jesus is the Messiah. Because Jesus will be coming in his own flesh and blood. He will be coming onto this earth and everybody in the world will be able to see with their own eyes that it was actually Christ who died. It was actually Christ who resurrected, who paid for the penalty of their sin and arose into Zion. Everybody will be able to see and profess and identify and, to, and know that it was Christ. And when they do, when they realize that Christ is the Messiah, when he is doing the judging, everyone will will repent. All of Israel who was alive at the time, at the second coming, will see that Christ is the Messiah. No matter how hard their hearts are, no matter how stubborn they are, it will be undeniable that Christ actually is the Messiah. And due to this, they will repent and they will be saved. Last week, I brought up the fact that there was some debate on whether or not there was a separate promise for Israel. And this is a bit of an interesting concept because if there is, then the theology of just salvation by faith is in true. There is another path to salvation and it is through a separate promise that God has reserved for Israel. But in my, in my opinion, when I look at this verse and I read it, it's not so much a separate promise that Paul is talking about, but Paul is actually just logically laying out how Israel will respond to Christ in the second coming when Christ comes to judge the world again. They will be unable to deny that it was actually Jesus Christ who was the Messiah. And this mystery that was held or, or that the Israelites would not, were not able to see will finally be fully revealed in front of their very eyes. And so if this is true, if this is the case, it still fits within the overall formula of salvation that we've seen throughout the Gospels and throughout Scripture. And it's that Jesus is still the way, the truth, and the life. He is still the only path to heaven, to salvation, to seeing God. It's just that when Christ comes down again, everybody in the earth will be able to see that He is the Messiah and they will repent. And so what Paul is saying 
is that God won't withhold His promise for Israel, despite how stubborn they've been. And that God will still hold true and be faithful to His promises to Israel. And we see Paul explain this in the next few verses, in 29, or 28 to 32. As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies for your sake. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on accounts of the patriarchs. For God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. Just as you who were at one time disobedient to God have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so they too now have become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound everyone over to disobedience so, they may, so that he may have mercy on them all. Finally, Paul takes a moment to revel in the magnitude of God's perfect plan and God's sovereignty, reveling in just how amazing God's foreknowledge, God's predestination is. That through the hardness of hearts of Israel, the gospel is extended to the Gentiles, and it is through God's continued faithfulness and grace and mercy that Israel continues to remain in the promise of salvation as well. Because God's love is so big and His grace is so wide, He will, not, he will choose not to exclude Israel from the kingdom of God, despite their hundreds and hundreds of years of stubbornness, of adultery. And this is the motivation for the doxology. He breaks out into song and, and, and rejoices and praises God spontaneously in the, in the middle of his dissertation, in, his, in the middle of his, of his lecture. Oh, the depths of the riches of wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his past beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord, who has been his counselor, or who has ever given to God that God should repay them. For from Him and through Him are all all things, to be the glory forever. Amen. And again, Paul references, references two passages in Scripture. The first is Isaiah chapter 40. And it is a passage where God encourages the nation of Israel, where God restores the nation of Israel. He forgives them of their sin. And it is in this context, God says, Comfort Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And it is in verse 13 where we see Isaiah the prophet respond to the immense grace of God that has just been demonstrated. He's blown away by God's mercy to forgive Israel despite their transgressions, despite their sin. The fact that God would continue to have compassion towards a people who've completely ignored Him, who've completely refused to be obedient, who've committed adultery over and over and over again. It, this, the God's compassion is completely beyond Isaiah's comprehension. And that's why in verse 30 he says, Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who gives God his advice? Because it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense that God would be so compassionate, that he would be so forgiving in light of our sins, in light of our mistakes. God is the one who determines him for himself who to extend his mercy and who to extend his grace towards. 
Similarly, in Romans 11, chapter, uh, Romans chapter 11, verse 35, Paul references Job 41.1. And this verse is a declaration by God. And I love it because what we see is, is a confident being who knows exactly what his value is and what he's done and what others cannot do. And he makes it very clear to Job the power that Yahweh has. In Job 41.1, he says, Can you pull in a Leviathan with a fishhook or tie down his tongue with a rope? No one is fierce enough to rouse it. Who then is able to stand against me? Who has a claim against me that I must pay? Everything under heaven belongs to me. Now, the Leviathan was viewed as one of the most powerful gods or beings or beasts in the Old Testament. And here we see, and, and especially in the time of Job. And here we see that God is, is speaking probably to one of the greatest fears of the people of, of that time. And, and, a, and a common day equivalent to what the Leviathan would be would be something like Hurricane Katrina or a volcano erupting. Right? It, it's, it's actually really hard to find a direct equivalent in our times because we're not as superstitious anymore. We don't believe in gods um, anymore. But but the idea is that it's, it's something that is unimaginably, unimaginably powerful, something that is incredibly destructive, that we have no control, no power to stop, that when it comes, that we are completely at its mercy. Yet this thing, this Leviathan, pales in comparison to God, the Creator of the universe. This Leviathan, who is so immense and so powerful and so destructive, the Leviathan itself submits to the authority of God. And so what we see here is Paul laying out and explaining how God will ultimately save both Jew and Gentile. And this is a huge relief for Paul. We see it at the beginning chapter of 10 where, where he says his heart's desire and prayer is for God to save Israel. But here at the end of chapter 11, he rejoices. He has peace in his heart that in the end, that God would not forget his promise to, his, uh, to Israel. That on the day of atonement, God has a spot, has a place for Israel as well. And as Paul reflects on the overall plan for the salvation of mankind as he reflects on how on God's sovereignty, how, in, how the stubbornness of Israel was served the purpose of extending the kingdom of God to Gentiles, and as he reflects in, how God, in God's sovereignty, the second coming, that all of Israel at that time, at the Day of Atonement, that those people in Israel who are living at that time period, that all of them will be saved, that they will all realize that Jesus is the Messiah, as Paul reflects upon how perfect and how complete God's plan is, he is overwhelmed. So much so that he takes a moment to stop. So much so that he stops lecturing, that he stops exhorting, that he stops um, writing this instructional letter to the church, and he stops and he breaks out in worship. Declaring how powerful and how magnificent God is. 
And it is here that I, I find that um, Paul models for us how we too should respond in worship to God. That as we pray, as we read scripture, as we are made aware of our own sin, do we ever respond with such gratitude? Do we ever feel overwhelmed by the grace of God where we have to stop everything that we are doing in order to worship Yahweh? You know, there are times when, when I'll be working out at the gym and I'll be listening to a sermon or I'll be listening to a worship song. And, and um, I don't know, when I, when I work out, I just, I just think a lot. Um, and inevitably it goes, my mind wanders to a place of all the stupid things that I've done and, and how, how many times I've messed up in the past week. Or, and, and as I'm working out and as I'm listening to sermons and as I'm hearing these worship songs, my heart is overwhelmed that, that sometimes that I just have to stop in the middle of whatever set that I'm doing. Because I realize just how fortunate I am. Because I realized how lucky I am. That I have a God who cares so much about me. That even though I refuse to be obedient, even though that I am stubborn in my own ways, even though that I am so forgetful, that God's mercy is so deep and His grace is so wide that He continues to forgive me. And it is in those moments where I feel overwhelmed. And I have to just stop whatever it is I'm doing and I have to respond and thank God. Because the truth is, I do not deserve this self. I do not deserve the gospel. I do not deserve God's grace or His mercy. I do not, there's nothing I have done to deserve His affection. Yet He gives it so freely. He gives it with so much abundance. And I, and I feel so, so much guilt and, and shame that I am unable to appreciate it. And so I'd like for us to take a minute to respond and to join Paul in his rejoicing, to, to join Paul in being overwhelmed by the grace of God. Let's take for a moment the fact that prior to Christ, that we had no hope. Let's take for a moment to truly appreciate how God in His sovereignty, in His magnificence, was able to turn Israel's stubbornness into a good. To use that fact to extend salvation to us, that we currently live in that blessing, 
Let us take for a moment and be grateful that we are saved due to God's grace and His mercy. And that God's affection is ever-present for us. So let's pray. I'll invite the worship team up. Lord, as I read the doxology one more time, may you fill us with awe. May we become overwhelmed with gratitude and, and just how powerful and how big and how incredibly majestic you are. That there is no beast on this earth, no being on this earth to whom gives you counsel. That there is no Leviathan, that there is no being who cannot be, or that you, that you are able to submit to, God. Or that they submit themselves to you. That you are the all-powerful, almighty being. Oh, the depths of the riches of wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable His judgments and His past beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been His counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from Him and through Him And for Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen.